man, we keep praying for him um, as well. And um, I want to let you know I've added a fifth sermon to our leadership series this week only because uh, it seemed to fit. And, you know, I'm leaving for vacation right after church today. So if you are a visitor, you may not get that quick email from me today, but uh, usually you'll get an email right away. But I wanted to add one more sermon to this thing. And, you know, we... We've been talking a lot about uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Um, Jesus calls us to certain things in that, uh, that passage that we've been looking at for weeks, like I've said. Uh, his authority to, to drive us and command us and, and all these things. His authority over the world, over, over heavens and earth and everything else. Uh, he tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, all distinctly uh, unique linguistically and culturally distinct people groups. He tells us to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He tells us that uh, to teach and to train uh, them to follow uh, all of what he's commanded in the scriptures. And lastly, he says that there is an end in mind. That's something we don't always think about. And that he's with us to that end, Right? And we have to keep that end in mind, and that's, that's what I want you to think about this morning during this sermon, is that end and how we live towards it. We have to keep that end in mind or we lose hope. And we are a hopeful people as Christians, right? We, we are living in hope. Our hope isn't only for Jesus right now, you know, like I just get saved and that's it, but we're, our hope is in his full reign of peace and justice and mercy and love and and all that stuff, uh, restoring the world to what it was originally meant to be. It was originally created to be. And in the meantime, living in that hope, we are to bring this message to all people groups, like it says in Matthew 28. And the scriptures, you know, if you, if you read, if you're familiar with them, the scriptures lead from the fledgling start uh, of, in the Garden of Eden, you know, back in Genesis, all the way to the city of God in Revelation, right? It's, it's a progression. It's a, it's a growth. You know, it, it, things are getting bigger and more complex and wonderful. And, and, and that is the place at the end where Christ reigns fully in peace and justice. And that's our hope that all of this stuff, all this craziness will, be, will come to an end and we will have peace and hope and justice in the world. And, and, and it's, that, it's that for which all humanity longs, isn't it? It really is, if you think about it. Although not everybody's come to the same conclusion, right? Wholeness and salvation and peace and justice are only found in Jesus. Only ultimately found in Jesus. Nowhere else. That's the Christian message, right? We all had that longing. Everybody in the world has that longing in their heart. Some just haven't awoken to the fact that it's in Christ and that he's the only answer for it. And living with the end in mind, uh, it, it seems like a great idea until you try to implement it, right? Until you really try to start living it. Because we live in a fast and furious culture under the mantra of instant gratification, right? I remember when the microwave came out. It was like I could cook a hot dog in less than a minute. That was crazy, right? I remember those things. Businesses like McDonald's were the first to sort of capitalize on that inner desire in us, Right? And right now, we almost disregard learning anymore because we have a smartphone in our pocket that is, you know, has more computing power than the first man's space flight. 
So I can say, Siri, how do I get to Timbuktu, right? Siri, remind me to buy my wife a, an anniversary present, which is very helpful. Uh, Siri, how many feet are in a mile, right? And all that kind of stuff. But have your battery die and look for a paper map while you're on vacation or, or even try to use a paper map anymore, and it's pretty impossible. Only people like my wife who are still living, you know, in the, uh, what, do you, what, do you, what was that TV show about kids and... They're out, I don't know, all right, never mind. But, uh, like, old, the kids are, like, out in the, never mind, I don't know. But old things, you know, like, you know, Kim, Kim loves paper maps, and if she could throw away her cell phone and her computer, she'd be very happy, right? But, um, you know, I, but, you know, put a paper map in front of me, I'm a little bit like, what in the world is that? That's from, like, the 1900s or the 1800s or whatever. It is from the 1900s. But, uh, anyway, <laughs> Some of that is very useful, right? It, it is useful, and, and I don't deny that. But it does cause us to cut corners in human development at this point, right? We're relying on this more and more. And, and very much of it brings a greater darkness of, to life. And I don't say that to bring you down this morning, but it is a truth. It brings a greater darkness to life. Given what's now in my hand, at my fingertips, a, a boy at 14 years old used to have to convince somebody to go buy him 30 years ago at a store, right? And the content becomes ever more deviant. Social conditioning and numbness come to us from everything that is now instantly thrown at us on a consistent basis. And we become more impolite, we become more angry, we become more stressed out. Uh, Philadelphia Magazine, I, I just threw it away yesterday, I had this, this article on how... Uh, Philadelphians are so angry, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, we post on social media things that we wouldn't say in polite company, and that's not integrity, by the way. It's just rudeness, right? Instant gratification isn't all that it's always cracked up to be. And that, all that attitude of instant gratification can easily be sort of imported in the church with very dis- disastrous results. Um, Good intentions maybe, but disastrous results. And, and, and this is important to hear. In character, in church development, in spiritual formation, solid growth, or slow growth is solid growth. Slow growth is solid growth. In character, spiritual formation, church development, things like that, slow growth is solid growth. And anything worthwhile is... Um, It takes time to build, and it's not worth cutting corners on, is it? And that's the spiritual life. So in seeking to move us ahead, you know, personally, or move our church ahead, we must now serve with the greater end in mind, always. Leaders must lead towards the end in order to break through faith barriers, Churches must walk with the greater end in mind to break through faith barriers. My wife was, is a teacher by training, and uh, she had this chore system while homeschooling our kids. We homeschooled our kids in Indonesia, and when we came back, we homeschooled them up until high school, and then we sent them off because we were sick and tired of them being in the house. But no, wonderful kids, but she had this chore system uh, you know, while she was homeschooling her kids, and she had a little play cash register, this little blue and red play cash register with all this, like, play money in it. And chores 
were on this list, and, and, and they all were worth certain amounts. So cleaning your bedroom or bathroom or taking out the trash or cooking dinner, each had a certain dollar amount at, you know, put to it. And cleaning the bathroom was worth more than taking out the trash for obvious reasons. Any kid does not want to clean the bathroom, right? Especially my children's bathroom. It is nasty. But they could cash in ver- for various things like free soda day because we were pretty, well, I wasn't, but my wife was pretty uh, adamant about what my kids eat and drink, right? Free so like, you remember that? There was this uh, comedy routine when mom goes away, dad's like making chocolate cake for breakfast and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I, that's, that was me, right? So free, like free soda day or free snack day. And the most expensive thing that they could buy was free no school day, right? They could actually not go to school if they saved up enough money. And of course, my kids being as intelligent as they are, I will brag about them a little bit, um, they quickly figured out that if they, if they you know, the, the piece de resistance, did I say that right, uh, was to save up all your money, you know, and not do it right away, but save up all your money and cash it out all at once, right? And I knew when that happened because I would come downstairs around 11 or 12 uh, you know, and, and my, one of my kids would be on the couch having just woken up themselves and they would be wrapped in a blanket. They would be watching cartoons. They would be eating popcorn and pop tarts and things like that while all the other kids were in the basement doing school. Right. And they had saved up all their money and they had bought free snack day, free soda day and free no school day all at once. It was a child's dream. They had practiced. I was very proud of this because they had practiced delayed gratification, right? They were living the adolescent dream. It was wonderful. And one of the best kept spiritual secrets is delayed gratification. Or or we can even say self-denial, right? Self-denial. And that means to focus what what is central. Jesus and his call, that is central to the Christian life. And it's central to every, all life, actually. With the end in mind to maintain what's of, you know, of eternal importance, and that is the final reign of God once more in peace and justice and love and all that. And that it, it's surrender of our own will. It's even surrender of our own ministry, our own success for God's measure of those metrics. An important focus to maintain is the knowledge that no matter what people in our culture or some seemingly successful pastors in churches say, the, the Christian life isn't about your best life now. It's not. To follow J- Jesus faithfully is, in part, an acknowledgement our best life comes later. It comes later. And our lives right now should reflect this reality. An important aspect of breaking through faith barriers revolves around this this important principle, living out of the abundance of our lives to come. Always thinking about that and building our lives on that. So I'd like to present to you a a number of shifts, uh, such as a focus engages from Philippians chapter 3, 13 through 21. Paul is speaking and he says, brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to the future, right? 
to what's ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly, <laughs> heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, all who are mature, I love Paul. Paul can actually sound kind of arrogant sometimes. He says, therefore, all who are mature should think this way. If you're not thinking this way, Paul says you should think this way, right? And if you think differently about anything, right, God will reveal this to you also. What's he saying there? He's saying, I'm right. And you'll come around to my being right at some point. That's what he's saying. But he is right. And he says, in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in me in imitating me, he says. That sounds arrogant, right? But it's not. Join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, even Christians can live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Remember this. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. In other words, they're, they're driven just by their desires, instant gratification, right? The end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we should imagine ourselves. From which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. There's that authority again, right? So what's he saying? He's saying our best life is in the future. Our best life is yet to come. And that's how we should be living in our, in our current reality. And Paul had a very positive change of perspective, didn't he? In a very positive change of perspective. Paul, in, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, speaks of his own changed heart and his life and his own purpose, change of purpose or change of perspective, right? He details his reasons to have all this confidence in himself, all this confidence in the flesh, or we might say in his own abilities. He says this, I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He was a well-trained dude, right? He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Isn't that great? I love that last verse. It's a wonderful verse. But what we see here is that religion, I mean, you don't even have to know the, the background of the, what he's saying. You know, what does it mean to be circumcised on the eighth day? You can imagine that these are his credentials, right? Religiously, Paul was at the top of his game. He was the Jew of Jews, right? He was just top of his game. He oozed credentials, right? He had every reason to take pride in his knowledge and his ability and in his status. He was, he was a very, very big dude in, in a certain sense, but that all proved for not upon being knocked off his horse. You remember when Jesus said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So he thinks he's working for God. But Jesus knocks him off the horse and says, I am God. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. 
Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. Who tells Paul what to do? Only God himself, right? The guy who had barked more orders at everybody else, right, was now going to be told what to do. This was a humbling moment for Paul in this miraculous encounter, encounter with Jesus, right? And in the city where Jesus told him to go, you know, he met Ananias. By, way, by the way, Ananias' house is still there, you know, on the, to this day, I think. To, to him, to, you know, and, and Ananias, the Holy Spirit had come to him and given him a heads up about Paul's coming. He said, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Paul, who had brought so much suffering to all those Christians, he had killed people, imprisoned people, you know, was now called to suffer for Christ himself. You know, so what a change of circumstances in the blink of an eye, knocked off a horse. And all of what Paul was had been overturned, upended. In Paul's meeting Jesus, it resulted in a complete and absolute transformation of his life, a redirection of his life and his purpose, 110%. It ruined his plans. So the question is, has Jesus ruined your plans? Right? Or are you still riding around your horse thinking you're all that? Thinking that you're actually working for the kingdom of God, but in many ways working against it. Because this change of perspective brings about an increased fruitfulness in ministry. After meeting Jesus, Paul absolutely embodied the Great Commission, didn't he? More so than anybody else, maybe. Paul absolutely embodied that that Great Commission, every word of it. And like him, sometimes we think that we're doing ministry, but we're really just living in religiosity, pursuing only safety and comfort, taking no real risks in our walk of faith with Christ. And up to that point where Christ transformed Paul's life, The fruit of his ministry was an anathema to God. But now, after being knocked off his horse, after meeting Jesus, everything which flowed from complete surrender and intentional gospel direction bore lasting fruit for God's kingdom through Paul. Everything he did was great after that. So what are you attempting to do in your God-given ministry in life? Because you have one. Do you see your circumstances as orchestrated by God for your good and for the furtherance of his purposes in this world to the people around you? Are you willing for Jesus to knock you off your horse and to suffer for him for the rest of your life? Are you still just pursuing self-gratification, instant gratification? That's the questions we have to ask ourselves. When Jesus comes to you and says, they need your ministry right now, go to them. Do you not go or do you go? 
Or if we have a kingdom opportunity, which Steph runs for us in our, in our community out there someplace as a church, do you find a way to not engage? Or when Jesus says to you, pray for that person right now, go pray for them. They need you to pray for them. Do you say, ah, I'm too uncomfortable with that? Does anyone you work with even know that you're a Christian? Do you come here on Sundays and interact with people here, but then have a whole other set of friends outside of your, you know, that, that would never know that you were a Christian by the way that you live your life with them? Do you make excuses? Don't you hate that your pastor's asking you these questions? <laughs> right? I, well, I'm leaving for vacation right after church, so you, you can't get me. Now, I'm not talking about not having healthy boundaries in life. That is taught in the scriptures as well. But it's always taught in this balance of expending ourselves for the sake of Christ's ministry in the world, right? Jesus sent out the 72 disciples to do ministry. And the boundaries he set there were, he said, he said when you enter a town and you are welcomed, you're received, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are, t- who are there. And tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. Right? That's doing ministry. But when you enter a a town and you are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust from your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. That's a hard verse. We're to be busy. We're all to be busy in ministry towards other people. But wasting our time with those who constantly deny what Jesus has to offer is not our business. That's sometimes very complicated. You can't always, you know, you're, you're not God. You're not, you're not the Holy Spirit. You can't read hearts. You know, you don't know how long it's going to take for somebody to respond. So I'm not saying just cut everybody off if they say no right away. But it is a general principle. And we can always pray for anybody at any time. But right now, it's not a time for our comfort, Right? It is not a time for our comfort. It's it's a time to expend ourselves in good, strong faith risks of ministry to those who need Jesus, both within the church, we're discipling one another closer towards Jesus, but also outside of the church. So we must seek to build a body, to to build this local body, which is 6-8 Vineyard Church, this local body of Christ, as a culture of transition and not one of having arrived. A culture of transition and not one of having arrived. See, salvation isn't the end game, right? We're we're not just sitting around waiting for Jesus to return. At no point, if you look at Paul's life, at no point in Paul's life did he ever give anybody the impression that he had arrived despite all of his credentials, right? Paul understood this underlying reality that our lives on earth aren't to be seen as this cul-de-sac on God's eternal dream. We don't just sit and park, right? As pilgrim people, pilgrim people are people that move around, right? Our present lives shape what's to come and our eternal lives shape the present, what we're doing right now. My wife has a sort of a man crush on Francis Chan right now. She, re- she read that book. What is it? The Forgotten God, which is a good book and everybody should read. If, if she's going to have a man crush on anybody other than me, Francis Chan is a pretty decent guy to have that crush on. 
She wants to read all his books now. Um, I'm like, I, I preach well too, sweetheart, you know. <laughs> but he did a sermon once, and I always remember this. You know, some sermons just stick with you, like, or illustrations just stick with you. And, and he had this rope that extended from the pulpit all the way out the door of the sanctuary. And at the end of the rope in his hand, he had like a one inch that was painted bright red, and he was holding it there. And he explained to us that everybody lives for that one inch. That's your life where you're born and you die, right? You're just living just for that. But there's a whole eternity ahead of us that we should be living for, right? And there's a real and meaningful interaction of these realities as we minister in in the world to people who, who we encounter, who we interact with, right? Are we people who see with eternal eyes in delayed gratification, or do we just live for the instant gratification, what we can get right now? But Paul, you remember, likens life to a race, doesn't he? One in which we all train our bodies and even we deny it things, you know, deny it comfort in order to compete for the prize that is at the end. We need to live with God's end in mind, not our own gratification. In a transitory sort of pilgrim church culture, we cultivate a generous spirit in a very stingy world. A generous spirit in a very stingy world. Paul's life was lived in generosity. If you, if you look at it, he emptied himself in service to Christ for the rest, since the time he got knocked off his horse for the rest of his life, he just emptied himself for Christ in, in ministry towards others. In verse 17, Paul instructs the Philippians to imitate him in their own lives, to pattern their lives after the example that they saw in Paul's life. And that is, by the way, discipleship, isn't it? That's discipleship. As Jesus modeled life to Paul, emptying himself out for the world, Paul does the same for others, and like Jesus, because Jesus said it in, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Paul expected the same of everybody that he discipled. Jesus expects that of you, to be a disciple, to be discipling others, to be pushing Jesus into the life of other people. So what example are we setting to others? Does leadership expect people to to give and to serve beyond the self-imposed limitations of our leadership and lack of godly example? Does leadership ask you to do this or that, but we're unwilling to do it ourselves? Should people really do as we say and not as we do? The Christian life is to be lived in ostentatious generosity, just overwhelming generosity, which is fueled by love for God and a desire to see his kingdom come in the lives of people all around us, to build not, not to build a name for ourselves, but to build Christ's name in the world. And living in this manner is both countercultural and it also brings little tangible reward. At least in the ways that we see in the present, in the very instant moment. I told the workers downstairs who are doing construction, and by the way, sorry for the dust in the mess down there, but we're, we're moving ahead. 
But I told them downstairs uh, last week that they have a great job because they get to see the end result of everything they do. They renovate a kitchen, they paint a wall, they, whatever they do, they, they get to see the end thing, you know, the upgraded kitchen. They, they see the end result. It's very satisfying to me. I like doing construction. And, and, and it's just cool to see something finished, right? But Christian disciples and Christian leaders don't have that luxury, do we? Because everybody is always a work in progress until Jesus comes back, right? But that doesn't mean the work isn't worth it. It very much is. It brings with it a lot of joy, but it also brings with it a lot of suffering, a lot of painful, necessary growth pains, right? So let's pursue God's prize. Let's strive forward with him. Let's, let's forget the past like Paul and let, for, because we know that God's got great plans for the future with us in mind. He does. We hope for the future using the present moment before us with people to bring about a greater reality of the kingdom of God. We really do. We're the people of God. We are, along with all the other Christians in the world, we are the people of God which live out of a growing hope that greater things are yet to come. Greater things are yet to come. We don't lose hope as Christians. We are hopeful people. Paul's great statement in verse 20 where he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, right, is something of which we always need to be reminded. Of course, Paul contrasts this verse to to the previous one where he establishes a contrast to those in the world whose focus is incorrect. By the way, there are rights and wrongs in the world. There are incorrects and corrects, right? And, and, And he says they're incorrect. And, he, and, and, and their choices and their focus and their desire, living for their desires, is leading them astray. And their glory is their shame. And they've received their, their reward in full. They've got a full belly, but they've, they've lost their soul. Right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is the same. He doesn't change. God's not only present in our lives today, but he's ahead of us in tomorrow. And next year, and forever, right? And as a result of his sovereignty in all matters, believers, Christians, can rest in this and be assured that our present transformation is a deposit securing all that's yet to come when all things will be made new, when everything's restored under the kingdom reign of God. We don't yet know a world without sin where sin doesn't reign all around us. We don't yet know that, but it will come to pass and we see glimpses of the inbreaking kingdom of God right now all around us when we do ministry. We've not yet fully been transformed into his likeness like Paul says in this passage, yet a day is near when we will be made fully like him. And that's exciting. And we all long for that day. We long for the peace. We long for the justice. We long for full love. And this is our hope in a hopeless world that Christ, no matter what, Christ is always king. And that's why Romans 15, 13 has been such a formative verse for our church because it speaks right into this living life of hope in the moment but extends into our future. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a great verse. So, in conclusion, how do we lead with the end in mind? How do we lead with the end in mind? As disciples and leaders, we have to be primarily committed to the message of the gospel and the process of transformation in our own lives first. Right? We need to validate our message for people and live out of the gospel among people. That's what Paul was doing. And this means pursuing Christ in spiritually formative ways, all of us, right? Which takes intentionality and it takes a lot of effort. You know, God's not against effort. He's just against earning, right? That's what Dallas Willard used to say. And we have a group of people here, as I said last week, that are training to be spiritual mentors for us that you can, you know, get stuff from them and utilize them when that's announced. You know, we're going to announce that probably in, in the fall. But don't wait until then, right? Get on it now. Get on your spiritual formation now. Have a quiet time. Read some good books. Make it a priority to come to church every Sunday. Go to a community group and engage in the conversation. Engage in prayer together. You know, participate in the kingdom opportunities when we offer them. That's our avenue to take the gospel out to people around us in our community. Pray with people. Pray with others. Have them pray for you. Share your prayers and your, pra- your, your praises, you know. Confess your sin to one another. Be vulnerable. Your spiritual life will be proportionately vibrant to the effort that you put into it. Right? Your spiritual life will be proportionally vibrant to the effort that you put into it. Number two, we need to embrace the humble pilgrim attitude, right? Where we are journeying and yet we don't consider ourselves to have yet arrived, right? Always remember, there is more to learn, there is more to experience in Christ, and there's always more ministry to do. People need ministry all around us. Number three, we've got to challenge people to spiritual maturity without spiritual shortcuts. Spiritual maturity without spiritual shortcuts doesn't work with shortcuts, right? Leaders must be less driven by results and more focused on transformation of the inner person. And I think we are here at 6-8. That's what we're trying to drive towards. Matters of the heart trump ostentatious acts of righteousness. They really do. You and I can't reach fullness in Jesus cutting corners, having a private sin life that we refuse to deal with and hoping Jesus just overlooks that doesn't work. He, he calls us higher to that. He calls us to holiness. He calls us to purity. And he went to the cross to, so that we could have victory in these areas and we could be a positive, great influence for his kingdom among peoples as a result. Number four, our culture is, and I hate to say it this way, people get upset when you say things like this, but our culture is doomed for destruction as enemies of the cross. It is. It just is. It's a truth that has to be told. But we are called to redeem our culture through the empowerment of of the Holy Spirit from the inside out, to change it. We are salt and light. Salt and light, right? That's what we are. Part of this paradox is the realization that God doesn't always work in the ways that we desire or expect, yet His work is perfect in every way. So don't be discouraged by what you see out there. Don't let the turkeys get you down, so to speak, right? 
God is not losing the battle. And he's already won the war. Right? As it says in John, 1 John 4, 4, he says, The one who is in you, meaning the Holy Spirit, the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that is a promise that you can take, take to the bank. That is something you can hold on to. Number five, transformational ministry is resultant from spirit-filled, God-honoring, and Christ-centered ministry. Transformational ministry is resultant of spiritual, spirit-filled, God-honoring, and Christ-centered ministry. So remember, neither cultural surrender nor gospel anemia will be sufficient for a ministry which keeps the end in mind and trades off what's simply good for what is best. We want what is best. Phil Stroud, our national director of the Vineyard, asked, since when did we stop asking the question, what do the scriptures say? Let your national director lead you in that. Let him lead you. That's the question that every Christian needs to be asking. We need to have a trust in the scriptures. We don't come to the scriptures with a critical eye trying to conform it to our culture. We come to the scriptures letting it inform us. Remember, culture always fluctuates. It fluctuates. It goes back and forth. It ebbs and flows. It, 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 you know, in various false convictions, you know, day in and day out, week in and week out, year, you know, decade by decade. Just because it's hard in some ways now for the believer, that'll change. It'll change. It has over history. When you look at in the history of the church, you think the things that we deal with as Christians in this culture right now are unique? No, they're not. And it'll become harder in other ways at different times, right? So never, never, never give up on the consistent good teaching of Scripture as the God-breathed, authoritative Word of God in all matters of life and faith. Trust the Scriptures. You, don't, you might not understand every little thing, but trust them, right? Be solid. Be so, choose to be solid in Christ. Right? Jesus upheld the scriptures in Matthew 5, 19. He says, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Right? It's kind of reminiscent of Matthew 28. I loved what Phil Strout said this week at the national conference. He said, God will not lead the vineyard into the weeds. We just have to obey and pivot when God calls us. Right? Being missional means we keep one foot grounded, but the other one in the air. The pilgrim church, right? We do not pivot away from the scriptures. And we do not pivot on our preferred outcomes. But we pivot on God's promise and on God's commands. Amen, Phil. Right? I love that guy. Love that guy. I got a man crush on Phil. Right? Just love that guy. What a good leader I, I have as my national director. Solid, grounded, moving forward on the promises and commands of God. And don't we all want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven? I do. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are solid. We thank you that you are trustworthy. We thank you that your scriptures are complete. 
we thank you that your word and your commands and your promises inform and direct and lead our lives. We thank you that you have given us purpose, that we're not just saved and put in a box and wait for your return, but you use your people. As, as Paul has said to us before, it's as if we are your ambassadors speaking through us. You're speaking through us to the world around us. And we pray that we would own that, that we would own your call and that we would lead, that we would keep our feet grounded in your scriptures, but we would be walking forward in you, trusting that you are taking us someplace and that we are bringing other people into this ship of faith along the way. And we thank you for that.